Hebrews chapter number 8. I'm going to read to you just one verse of Scripture, and then we'll look and see what the Bible has to say about this content there. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 5, the Bible says, "...who serve under the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount." Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. Father, I pray, dear God, for your help now, as we can do nothing without you. But Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would give us grace, that you'd give us wisdom and the words to speak. Father, I pray that you'd be honored in everything we say and do, Lord God, that you would be glorified. And Father, I pray again that you'd take this word, send it out to the heart that needs it, dear God. Encourage those of your children, edify us, strengthen us. And Lord, I pray, dear God, that you'd convict the heart of the lost even now. Bless us to do your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look here, Hebrews chapter number 8. And verse number 5 there, the Apostle Paul speaking, he gives an account of what we read in Exodus chapter 25 through 40, the remainder of that book there, uh, dealing with what we refer to as the tabernacle there, one of uh, uh, the constructions that Moses was, was uh, given there, one of the uh, constructions that he was told to build uh, for the children of Israel while they walked through the wilderness, while they uh, traveled on there, and, and where they would meet as a place of worship as they uh, went from Egypt into Canaan land there until the establishing uh, of the temple there. Uh, that tabernacle served as that place where God would meet with his children there. And he says something here. The apostle Paul brings out something uh, that was said to Moses on Mount Sinai there. He goes on to tell him, he says, make sure that you make this tabernacle, that you construct this thing exactly the way I show it to you. God had taken Moses and he had given him a specific blueprint. He had given him one plan and Moses was not allowed to deviate from one detail of this tabernacle. Everything that we see there, down to the very colors that were used, the material, the way it was presented, uh, even the direction that this tabernacle faced there, every bit of it was to be done exactly how God showed him and there was absolutely no leeway for Moses to add or to interpret anything by himself. You say, preacher, why was God so specific on those things? Why was it that God was so uh, demanding there and was so uh, passionate about the fact that Moses had to do it a certain way? Well, friends, the reason we see that is because every detail of this tabernacle, everything this Bible records of it, it speaks of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work of redemption. Every single uh, detail about this thing, down to the smallest of details, uh, spoke of God's plan of salvation. And friends, I want you to understand, just as it was in the days of Moses with the tabernacle, just as it was in the life of Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, so it is today, friends. Uh, salvation is 100% the plan of God. Man can add nothing nothing to it. We can do nothing to enhance it. We can't make it better. We can't change it. We have to come according to the way that God had set up. Now, I want you to notice three things about this tabernacle. It was separated in three parts. And these three parts consisted of a total of seven pieces of furniture there. Each one uh, speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into the tabernacle, before we get into those seven pieces of furniture, those three compartments, it must be noted that as you were coming up from the outside, as someone was approaching this tabernacle from the outside, what they would see was a large white fence seven and a half feet tall, made of that white fine linen. And what it did was it surrounded the entirety of that tabernacle. There was not but one entrance 
that could come in there. Everything else was covered by this fence there. That white spoke of the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That entrance there facing the east there, that tribe of Judah, uh, spoke of Jesus Christ being the door there. In John 10 and verse number 9, he said, I am the door by me if any man enter in there. In John 14 and verse number 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You could not approach this tabernacle. You could not enter this tabernacle any way but that one entrance. You could not come over the fence. You couldn't climb it. It was too high. It would not support the weight of someone trying to get over it. You had to come by the door. Now from the outside, all you would see is this white linen fence and you would be able to see just a little bit of the roof of the tabernacle. It had four layers to that roof there. That outer roof was what they refer to, what the Bible refers to as gopher skin or porpoise skin. It would have been a leather-like material that was waterproof and weatherproof. And as you come to this uh, outside there, you saw it. It was very dry. It was very drab and, and uh, dull of color. It had no beauty. It was nothing to be desired from the outside. Friends, that speaks of Christianity in the sight of a lost person today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. Uh, speaking of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53 and verse number 2. He said, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a tender root out of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should, de uh, that we should desire him. Friends, to a lost person, the Lord Jesus Christ has no beauty or no earthly appeal. To a lost person, Christianity has nothing of, uh, of no desire to it. It is a, a bunch of rules, a bunch of don't do this, a bunch of don't do that. Uh, to, to the lost person, God is a uh, judge that is sitting back and he is looking for anyone to step out of line so that he can condemn them to hell. He's an unfair and an unjust God. It is not until you get into that tabernacle that you could see the beauty of that building and the exquisiteness and all the things that went on in it. It is not until a person becomes saved there and the Holy Spirit of God begins to dwell in their hearts that they can rec uh, recognize the beauty of what that relationship between us and the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's not until we see God not as just a judge, not as just one who wants to condemn, but who, one who wants to save, one who loves and one who gave His Son to die in our place so that we didn't have to, friends. It's not until you walk into that gate that you can see the Lord Jesus the way He's to be seen in beauty and in all and in majesty. Now, I want you to notice again three things as we look at here, three parts that we see about this tabernacle. First of all, there was a place of invitation. This was known as the outer court. In this place, there were two distinct pieces of furniture. When you walk through that gate, and you walk through that door in that eastern gate there, the first thing you would see is what is referred to as the brazen altar. This altar was the largest piece of furniture out of the seven. It was the largest piece in the tabernacle. It was seven and a half feet squared by four and a half feet high. 
This would have been a very large thing there. And before you could approach that tabernacle, before you could go any closer, you had to first come by this brazen altar. Now this thing was made out of wood, and that wood was overlaid and was sealed with bronze there. Wood in Scripture uh, speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bronze in Scripture speaks of His perfect judgment. Now this altar was a place where every sacrifice had to be made there. Every sinner that would come there, every one of those Jews would bring that offering, uh, that sacrifice there, and that priest would take that offering and he'd slay that innocent animal and he'd put that thing on that altar there and that blood would spill down and, and that place there was a place of judgment. It was a place there of sacrifice. It was a place there of death and of uh, sorrows there. That, uh, that priest would put that animal on that altar there and that fire would consume that thing. Speaks of the righteous judgment of God. Now that fire was to burn continually. It was never to go out. That speaks of God's holiness. He is continually and perfectly holy. Always just. Always judging sin there. There will not be one sin that God sweeps under the rug. But it's amazing to think that though that altar was made of wood... The fact that it was sealed in and it was overlaid by that bronze, that allowed that fire there, that wood, to be always exposed to that fire and that fire to never consume it there. Uh, that fire there could never get the oxygen needed to come in and to burn up that wood, friends. That speaks of the sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could endure the temptation. He could endure the affliction. He could endure the judgment of God. And He could withstand it there. Why? Because He's holy and He's above all things. No man can do that on His own there it was Christ and Christ alone that brazen altar friends that was the first thing that was seen when you walked in those curtains that was the place you had to stop before you could go any further you say preacher what's so important about that friends it speaks of the cross of Calvary that represents the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself hung on before any man can approach God today, before any man can come into the presence of God, before any person, no matter how good you may think you are, before we can come into the presence of a holy God, we've got to go by Calvary. We've got to come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ through His sacrifice. There is no other way to get to God but by that altar, but by that cross. Friends, before anybody here, I don't care, you say, Preacher, I repeated a little prayer when I was young. Preacher, when I was in Sunday school class, uh, somebody asked me if I believed in Jesus, and I said yes, so I know I'm saved. Friends, if there's no repentance, if there's never been a time that God has broken your heart over sin, if there's never been a time that you've come and recognized yourself as unholy and unright and unable to get to God on your own, friends, I'm telling you, you need to go by that altar. And see the cross there. If it was something we could do on our own, God would not have sent His Son to die in our place there. Not only was there that altar, that brazen altar, but the next thing that you came to before you entered into that tabernacle, that next piece of furniture, was what we refer to as the brazen lava. It was a washing place. Now it's interesting when you study Scripture, this is the only piece of furniture in that tabernacle that has no measurements given. You say, preacher, why is that significant? Because it speaks there of the eternal uh, uh, sufficiency of that cleansing power of Christ there. 
After that priest had come and had altar, uh, offered that animal on that altar there, speaking of that cross, he had to go to that, uh, uh, that laver there and he'd have to wash those hands and those feet before he come into the presence of God. Friends, that's exactly what the Word of God does for us there. That's what Christ does for us. He searches our hearts. He examines us. He presents us as holy before His Father. And we've got to come and have that water of the Word, the Spirit of God, come and wash us so that we can have fellowship with God. They would come there and they'd wash their hands and their feet before they entered into that tabernacle, before they came into that, uh, that holy place. And they'd cleanse themselves with a continual stream of that washing water. Friends, John 7 and verse number 38, Jesus Himself said, I am the living water. He tells us there He's that source, He's that supply there. In order to approach God, we've got to come in the cleanliness and the perfection of Jesus there. And they'd come and they'd wash themselves. Exodus 38 and verse number 8 tells us that the bronze that was supplied, the bronze that was used to, to build that altar, excuse me, that laver there, the bronze that was used was what was referred to as the looking glasses. It was a mirror. Now they didn't have mirrors like you and I do today, that glass that gives that clear reflection. They would take that bronze and they would polish that bronze so much that they could see themselves, that it would give a clear reflection of who they were. Friends, that's what the Word of God does for us. It allows us to see ourselves as God sees us. It allows us to see those imperfections and those things we need to lay down at the feet of God, friends. I'm not talking about physical imperfections. I'm not talking about our hair being done right or our clothes being on straight. I'm talking about those imperfections that are deep inside our heart, those things that we know that are hidden from the world, but God Himself sees them. And He searches those things. And He allows us to lay them down in, in humble and in truthful confession. And to come to God, David said, search me, O Lord. Try me. I, I know my innermost thoughts. He said, God, here's my heart. Look in it. Friends, that's the fellowship that we have with God. Once salvation is established there, once we come by that cross, we've got to keep that short account and make sure we've got fellowship with God. As the songwriter said, nothing between my soul and the Savior. Friends, this was a place of invitation. That outer court was available to all. That altar being the largest place there speaks of the sufficiency of the cross for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved there. It's welcome to all. We notice next not only the place of invitation, but secondly, we see that there was a place of intercession. After they would come there, they'd go to that altar and they'd go to that lava, that priest would be able, and only that priest would be able, the common man could not come into the holy place. You say, preacher, why does that apply to us? Because 1 Peter 2 and verse number 9 says we've been made a, a royal priesthood there. Anybody that's saved today has been brought into the priesthood of God. And friends, when you come into this uh, place of fellowship, this holy place, this place of intercession, you would see three more pieces of furniture. Each one of them just as significant as the next. That priest, when they would come in, they would see there on one side, they would see what was called the table of showbread there. There would be 12 loaves of bread that was placed there and they'd be replaced every Sabbath. 
There's 12 loaves again speaking of everybody in the 12 tribes of Israel there. And as they would come in, those priests would gather around this table. And they would sit and they would feast on that bread there. That bread, uh, it, was, it was sweet there. Be, uh, it was uh, salted there or seasoned with that frankincense there. Uh, speaking of that sweet fellowship of God, there, the grace of God. And they'd come in and they'd uh, dine on that bread. You say, preacher, what's that got to do with us? Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, not once but multiple times. In John 6, 35, verse 48, verse 51, He said, I am the bread of life. What was it that sustained those priests? What was it that gave them strength to minister? What was it that allowed them uh, the nurturing and the nutrients they needed to be strong and to do the work that God had called them? It was the bread of God. It was Jesus Christ there. Friends, what is it that allows you and I to minister? What is it that gives us strength to work there? It is the, uh, the strength of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. It's Him. They would come and they would gather around uh, this table there and they would dine on that meal and they'd fellowship one with another. Friends, the Bible says very clearly, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. I want to tell you right now, I thank God that we're able to gather, that we're able to do this. But when this is all said and done, don't let Facebook, don't let social media, don't let anything be an excuse as to why you don't gather in that house there. You can't get on social media what you can get in the fellowship with God. They dine together, they dwell together, they uh, feed on the bread of the Lord Jesus Christ after they would go to that uh, table of showbread there. On the opposite side of that holy place would be seen there what was, uh, what was referred to as the, uh, the golden candlestick. A better, a better translated, a lampstand. It would be fed there with oil continually burning there. And this lampstand was made of one piece of one solid piece of gold. It would have one center shaft, and out of the sides of that shaft, there were three branches on each side there. Uh, six in total, and the branches seven with the, uh, the center shaft there. You say, Preacher, why is that important? Friends, the number six in Scripture is the number of man, it represents man. And you see there those branches coming out of the side of that shaft there, friends, that shaft signifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the centerpiece, the, uh, the one we come out of there. Friends, the church was birthed out of the side of Christ. John 19 and verse number 34 tells us that soldier pierced the side of the Lord Jesus. And from that piercing came forth the very blood and water that purchased the church. 1 Peter 1 18 through 20 says you're not redeemed. The word redeemed means to buy out of the slave market. You're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. That shaft there, again, those six branches, by themselves, they were nothing. But when, when attached to that seventh branch there, uh, that number seven in Scripture is a number of perfection. It represents that church there. Friends, do you realize... That the church, the body of Christ, is perfect in the sight of God. It's who He died for. It's what He established there. Friends, it is you and I uh, that, that make up that church. Thank God we get to be the holy bride of Christ. And we're precious in His sight. Exodus 27 and verse number 20 tells us that that lampstand was to be continually fed with oil. 
that it was to burn constantly. It was never allowed to go out. The priests were not allowed to let this lamp burn out. That oil there was to be continually placed inside of it. There, friends, oil in Scripture is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. That oil there, that Holy Spirit, is what encourages us. It's what strengthens us. The Bible says, uh, whereby you're sealed. Uh, that Spirit there seals us under the day of redemption. It's what feeds us. It's what strengthens us. Jesus in John 15 in verse number 5 said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Except ye abide in me, ye can do nothing, friends. All of that is seen in this beautiful tabernacle. That's why God told Moses, make it exactly the way I show you. That golden lampstand, golden scripture, represents deity there. We've been brought in. And we've been made the sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into the very family of God. We have better standings than the angels. We are redeemed there. We're made that perfect bride in the sight of Christ. Oh, friends, what a beautiful picture. Now, once you got past that table and that, that uh, lampstand, you would come and you'd see that third piece of furniture in that holy place there. And it was an altar of incense. This altar was made there, it was uh, made of wood and it was overlaid with gold. Friends, that wood again speaks of the humanity of Christ. The gold speaks of the deity. This was the tallest piece of furniture out of the seven. You say, preacher, why? Uh, what, what's important about that, friends? It represents... The highest act of worship. It was right before that veil. This altar was placed right before that veil, before you entered in to that Holy of Holies there. It was the highest piece there, friends. It represented that most supreme and that most sovereign act of worship. And that's the action of prayer. Incense would continually burn and rise up as a sweet smell to God. The flames that they got, uh, the, the, the way that they burned that incense is they would take the coals from the altar there, that brazen altar, that place of sacrifice, they'd take that, those coals there. That's what burned those prayers. And friends, it was Calvary, a reminder of Calvary that caused them to pray. It's a reminder of Calvary that should cause us to pray. But that smoke would rise up there, friends. John 17, that great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ where He is about to go to the cross. And he is praying and interceding on behalf of the believers. He's talking to God the Father. And he says in verse number 9, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou gavest me. For they are thine. That's Christ praying for you and me. That's the prayer for the church there. That's not the lost there, friends. The only prayer that the lost have is a prayer of salvation. is a prayer of repentance asking God to forgive them. But you and I today... Because we've been saved, because we've been made a part of that priesthood, we can enter in to the very presence of God and those prayers there. Friends, when our heart is right and when we've dined on the bread of God, we've dined on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we've offered up that light there, uh, that light comes from us from the Holy Spirit of God, when we come with that, those prayers are a sweet savor to God. Oh, friends, there is a place of invitation. That outer court was available to all. There was a place of intercession, that place that was reserved solely for the priest. But lastly, we see this morning, there was a place of intimacy. See, that tabernacle was divided into three sections. You would have that outer court where all were welcome. Then you would step in and you'd come into that inner court there, that holy place. 
where only the priest could come. But beyond that, there was a veil, a large curtain that separated that holy place from what we call the holy of holies or the most holy. And in this place was represented the presence of God. This place was off limits to everybody but the high priest one time a year. He could go in and it had to be a specific time. It had to be that day of Passover. That Passover lamb, the blood of that lamb would have to be offered inside that holy place. That veil was so heavy. Jewish tradition tells us that you could hook an oxen on both sides of that thing and it would not tear in half. You say, preacher, what's so significant about that? That veil represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Calvary, apart from that body, apart from Christ being that perfect sacrifice for you and I, the, off, uh, the entrance into the presence of God was off limits. No matter how good we were, no matter how many sacrifices we made, we could not come into the presence of God. That body, that veil blocked that way. But when Jesus hung on that cross and He cried out, It is finished. God Himself ran that, that veil from top down to bottom, split that thing in half, and welcomed all who were able, all who come by the blood, to enter into the very presence of God. Friends, bear with me just a minute. There were two pieces of furniture inside the Holy of Holies. Bear with me for just a second. And we'll finish up this morning. The first piece of furniture you would have seen inside the Holy of Holies is what is referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. This was a rectangular box made of wood overlaid with gold. Again, symbolizing the perfect humanity and perfect deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And inside that box, there were three specific things. There was the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. That law was broken by man. Man had violated that law before Moses even made it down the mount. We know the account. He came down. He saw Aaron. He saw Israel. They were rising up in idolatrous worship. And he took the stones there, the tablets, and smashed them to pieces. God remade them. We understand that law was broken. There would have also been manna that was inside that tabernacle, that ark there, that covenant. That manna there again symbolizing the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread that was sent down from heaven. The third thing would have been Aaron's rod. Aaron the high priest there, his rod that he had carried. That when put up against all others there, his rod had buddied. Friends, it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had budded there and it had budded uh, not just with uh, flowers, but it had budded with almonds. An almond tree is the first tree to bloom after winter. Speaks of Christ being the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians 1 and verse number 15 tells us that. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 tells us uh, that He is the first, uh, firstborn, the first fruits there. That rod would have been in there. Now friends, again, just bear with me for a minute. Had God left just that ark, had it been just that, uh, that rectangle box, had it been just that broken law, every time God would have looked down from heaven and seen that ark there, He would have had to come in wrath and in judgment. He would have seen the broken law. He would have seen sin debt that was unpaid. And He would have had to execute judgment upon those that were guilty. 
But over top of that ark, the last piece of furniture we see is what was called the mercy seat. This mercy seat was literally a lid on top of that ark. And it fit perfectly over top of this thing. And it was made of one solid piece of gold. No wood involved with it, just that solid piece of gold. Friends, that tells us that salvation speaks only of the deity of Christ. That salvation is 100% of God. It is nothing that we can add to it. It is nothing we can do. Friends, the Bible tells us in Acts 4 and verse number 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That ark there, that, uh, that covenant, that broken law, that mercy seat sat right over top of it. And that priest would come in, that high priest would come in one time a year and he'd sprinkle that blood on top of that mercy seat. He'd sprinkle that blood not just of any sacrifice but of the Passover lamb. And it would cover that mercy seat there. And when God looked down Instead of seeing that broken law, and instead of seeing the sin of man, he would see that mercy seat. He would see the blood of the Lamb, and he could pass over judging man there. He could give grace and mercy. Friends, do you know the word mercy seat is the same word that is translated, uh, the same Greek word that is translated propitiation. You say, preacher, what's important about that in Romans 3? In verse number 25, the Bible says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a mercy seat, through faith in His blood to declare righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, who God hath ordained to be a propitiation. That means God established it, God desired it, God carried it out perfectly, that Christ Himself, is our propitiation. He's our mercy seat. Now, friends, I want you to get a hold of something. If you're saved today, when God looks down from heaven, looks at you, He doesn't see your past faults. He doesn't see your future sin. He doesn't see any of your failures. What He sees is the mercy seat, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself that covers us in His grace. He sees the blood not just of the Paschal Lamb, but the Lamb of God there that covers you and I today. And when He looks down, He doesn't look down in wrath and in judgment. He can look down in grace and in mercy and in favor. And He sees you and I today redeemed, forever covered by the grace. Now I have said all that to say this. One of the things that I have noticed that we see that, that one of the things that, that uh, the, the changing of our services to the social media and the bringing them out, what we've seen is that people have a very, very limited understanding, even in ignorance of Scripture today. There are people that are telling you, oh, we're in the tribulation period and, and there's pestilence and there's wars and there's rumors of wars. Friends, that's not what we're looking for today. You and I, the tribulation is not now. We know that the church will not go through it. God has sealed us, has spared us. The next thing we're to look for is the rapture of the church. And it's important we understand what exactly is going on there. We're not looking for wars and rumors of wars. There's always been war. There's always been pestilence. There's always been hunger. Why? Because it's a sin-cursed world. What we're looking for, 
What we see today, what marks where we stand in God's calendar is the fact that so many hearts are going away from the truth of the gospel. So many folks don't understand what this Bible says. There's apostasy running rampant. There's pulpits and entire churches where the lost are in there and they're comfortable, friends. I'm telling you, there is salvation today. It's true salvation, but it is only through Christ. And I don't care if you've repeated some little prayer. I don't care if you have a your name on a church membership or you've been baptized. If there has never been a time that you yourself have gone past that altar, that cross, and humbled yourself and accepted the perfect salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's never been a time that you've come before God and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Lord, it's me. I'm undone today. If there's never been a time that you've gone by that altar, friends, you better make sure you get that right with God. We are living in a time where anything passes as doctrine and Christianity. and That's a sad place to be. We understand that. The Bible is very clear on that. The book of Revelation, we read uh, chapter 3, the Laodicean church. That's an apostate church. The word apostasy, what it means is a willing departure from the truth. For, friends, there are many today who call themselves preachers, teachers, Sunday school teachers, all, uh, so on, that have come up and they have departed from the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. There are many today who have come and said, well, Jesus is a good man, but he, 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 I don't think he's the son of God. There are many today who say, well, uh, Muhammad and Buddha and Allah and, and anybody you want to choose, they're all the same. You just pick whichever one. Friends, Jesus said it very clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Every other religion on the face of this earth says you have to do something in order to be saved. You have to work. You have to earn it. You have to do some kind of, of uh, a sacrifice to get it. Friends, Christianity says Christ did it. He did it alone. And we can't add anything to it. All we can do is accept it by faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, before that priest could come into that holy place, come into that holy of holies, the presence of God, he had to first go by that altar. He had to first go by that lava and let that word wash him, that water wash him. Friends, before you and I today can say, Preacher, I know I'm going to heaven, we've got to go by that cross. That's not popular anymore. Matter of fact, much of what I'm saying is going to be offense, offensive to somebody. Much of what I'm saying is going to bother some of you to say, Preacher, I don't agree with that. But it's not my opinion, it's the Word of God. That and that alone must be our final authority. Not someone's interpretation, not someone's adding to it. The Word of God, thus saith the Lord. That is our only hope today. And that, if we are ever going to see revival, if we are ever going to see souls saved, that is what we have to get back to. The Word of God. As we close today, friends, I want to ask that simple question. Did you come by the way of the altar? 
Did you come by the way of the cross? Did you come through the blood of Jesus Christ? Because the Bible is very clear, neither is there salvation in any other. This book, it might not be popular, but it's still inspired. It's still relevant. It's still inerrant. It's still the perfect Word of God. And Jesus said very clearly again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you now. Lord, I do thank you for this day. Father, I thank you that our authority, that our hope, that, that our salvation is not based on our opinion. It's not based on our interpretation. It is based on this perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Father, I thank you that even though it might not be widely accepted, I thank you that even though the message is offensive and there's so many that have gone away from it, I thank you that it is still just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago when you hung on Calvary's cross, as it was 4,000 years ago when this tabernacle was established and each piece spoke of the Lord Jesus. Father, just as you told Moses, make sure you carry it out. Make sure you make it exactly the way I show you. Father, that same message is to your church today. Make sure that the message of salvation is given out exactly the way I told you, through Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray that you'd give us hearts of boldness. I pray that you'd give us a fire. I pray that we wouldn't back down. And as Paul said, we'd not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world still needs it today. Give us that boldness to stand firm on your word. We ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.